And our gospel reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 21, uh, verses 23 through 32. If you'd like to follow along, your pew Bible, you may. It's on page 23 in the New Testament section. Um, we meet Jesus in, this cha- in, this, in these verses here. Jesus is ridden on a donkey. Um, he's gone into Jerusalem. Um, he has turned over the tables. He has healed people in the temple. He's starting to teach and preach in the temple. He has made quite the disruption. He has made quite the, um, uh, created lots of mayhem um, while he's there in the temple. And so this is where we find uh, Jesus um, now and at the beginning of our, as we come to our scripture reading this morning. Again, Matthew 21, verses 23 through 32. I invite you now to listen to God's word. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching. He said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven or was it a human origin? And they argued with one another, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then do you not believe me? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the crowd, for all regard John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and went. The father went to the second son and said the same thing. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, The first. And Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. But John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. Friends, this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Will Willimon tells of a friend from college who'd become an expert in the East-West relations back in the 1980s. He was working for a large corporation that was negotiating contracts with the then-Soviet Union. At lunch one day in Moscow, his Russian counterpart said, you know, I'm an atheist. I make my decisions based on the idea that the material world is all there is. I do not believe there's anything more than what we see here in the world. You are a Christian. So you look at the world differently than I do. But we seem to work together with no problem. So you tell me, how does being a Christian make a difference in the way you look at business? How does it make a difference in the way you vote? How does it make a difference in the way you spend your money? How are you any different than I am? The man said that he was stumped by this question. He's been all over the world. 
And he had never, but he, and he had always considered himself to be a Christian. He had all, never thought about Christianity, though, in those terms. So he thought, sought out his old friend from college, Willimon, who was then a chaplain at Duke University. He said to him, how do I find a faith that matters? That makes a difference in who I am. How do I get a faith that costs something, that demands something out of me? Another way of asking this question was, who is my authority? And this is the ultimate question that not only were the chief priests and elders asking Jesus, but this is the question that Jesus is being asked throughout all of Matthew's gospel. Just what gives you the right? Who is your authority, Jesus? One scholar points out there's alliances against Jesus. And if we're careful, we'll notice the alliances are constantly changing throughout Matthew's gospel. Going all the way back to the Magi, King Herod calls the chief priests and the scribes. After Jesus' baptism, it is the Pharisees alone that create a conspiracy theory. Then this moves to the scribes partnering with the Pharisees. And then Jesus predicts his arrest. Jesus identifies his accusers to be elders, chief priests, scribes. Then earlier in chapter 1, if the chief priest and the, it's the chief priest and the scribes again, then it moves to the chief priests and the Pharisees. And now here in our reading today is chief priests and the elders. It would be easy for us to consider that all these titles are just interchangeable with one another. But doing so misses the key point to Matthew's gospel. Each of these groups represent a type of authority. Chief priest, one's birthright. Scribes, their authority, the education. Elders is wealth and um, social connection. Pharisees are laws, black and white, dualistic religious laws. Together, these groups embody the major authorities of the day. They look at Jesus and they say, what gives you the right? Prance up in here, turn over our tables, kill a few people, teach, and create all this mayhem. Who do you think you are, Jesus? What authority do you have, Jesus? We all have them. Authority, that is. Some um, authority in our lives, uh, some type of authority in our lives that is upstream from everything else in our lives that affects all the rest of our decisions. For some, that is our birthright. Our authority is our birthright, our family name, our family wealth. For others of us, it's this um, social status. It's us trying to climb this corporate ladder or us trying to, to gain more money. For others of us, Education is our authority. We take a lot of pride in the letters behind our name. While others of us, our authority is our power or our politics or our ideology. That's what makes all decisions in our lives. For others, it's religion. 
I suppose that's why most of us are here this morning. We're here this morning because we're yearning for a faith that is upstream of all the rest of our decisions. We're yearning for a faith that's our authority, a faith that demands something from us. With a government that is always threatening a shutdown <coughs> as our backdrop this morning. We live in a world where individual politics and ideologies seem to be the authority of everything else. So with that as our backdrop, I wonder what it would look like for a church to live into their faith as being an upstream of all the rest of the decisions that we make. I think this is what Jesus is trying to get us at. I think Jesus is trying to push us there when he asks that question, what do you think? That question, what do you think, is not just addressed to the chief priest and the elders. Oh, what do you think is addressed to the reader of Matthew's gospel? What do you think when Jesus asked that is addressed to the church today? It's addressed to you and to me. It's an important question. What do you think? Because that question itself implies that everyone around the table matters. What do you think creates collaboration? It creates community. Trust, honesty, humility. The question that makes us look within and ask us, who is our authority? It invites and it demands. It demands vulnerability. And vulnerability, by definition, requires some type of doubt. The opposite of faith, Anne Lamont has said, is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. Certainty is missing the point entirely. Certainty only hears our own voice. Certainty only hears voices that are similar to our own, which leads us to a tight-knit, well-crafted silos whose ideology and laws and politics are upstream from everything else we do in our lives. But to have a demanding faith that is our authority, this type of faith requires some type of doubt. And doubt within our faith, it welcomes this question, what do you think? Giving us a safe place, it takes some risk in how we answer that question. It gives us a safe a place to be okay with making mistakes. It gives us a safe place that says, I want to learn from you. And I assume that you want to learn from me. It's that doubt in our faith that keeps us late at night, up late at night, asking ourselves, what is it do I actually think? It makes us open up the Bible and, and go deeper into what we think and how we make our decisions and who our authority is and why we do what we do. And I believe that's what God is at work in our lives. That God is slowly changing our authority into 
everything becomes upstream, until everything comes downstream from our faith. Notice the parable that Jesus tells today in our reading. The first son changes his mind. I wonder how many sleepless nights he encountered after he told his father no. Completely vulnerable with himself. Doubting his quick response, no, I will not go. Questioning, what just is my authority? Why would I say such a thing? Yes, I think. To be part of a church community that welcomes the question, what do you think? It welcomes vulnerability and doubt. It welcomes opinions. And it welcomes the idea that we'll be changed. That's what I think. But what do you think? I suppose if if our church were to embrace the question, what is it that you think? It would welcome also forgiveness. Also, notice in this parable, the first son was quick to say no, as we just said. But eventually, he goes to work in the vineyard. The second son says yes, but never made it to the vineyard. One way to see this is that Jesus is equating the second son to the chief priests and the elders. And the first son to all the Gentiles who rejected Jesus and then converted later on. And that's not a bad way at all about reading this parable. Well, Jesus is asking us. This gospel is coming directly to you and to me and to the church of the 2023. What do you think? And here's the surprise of the parable. The surprise is that Jesus summons the Jewish leaders of the day to be like the first son and to join the likes of the tax collectors and all the prostitutes. That's a surprise. Some 2,000 years later, Jesus asked you and me, Jesus asked our church, what do you think for us to look deep inside and think about all those times we said, yes, Lord, without going? The house of all sinners and saints is a small, traditional church, Lutheran church in Denver. It has traditional liturgy like we do. It sings traditional hymns like we do, and it celebrates communion every single week. The original members are mostly young adults, many people who knew each other from AA or other recovery programs that they were in. A lot of the folks are off the street, too, who didn't fit in in any other church. Now, one Easter, the pastor preached at the city's Red Rock Sunrise Service, and the Denver posted a story on the church, a story on the pastor, and from there, a new group of people began showing up at this church. There were middle-aged bankers and tech workers and accountants, all wearing dockers and sundresses. Instead of eating at the local uh, hip place, they preferred to dine at Applebee's. The pastor started getting frustrated. Why are these people ruining our authentic, quirky little church, she thought. And it went on for a couple months, and the people just kept coming. 
She so much so it bothered her so much so she um, had a meeting after worship one day to discuss the changing dynamics of the community. And at some point in the meeting, Asher uh, spoke up. Asher spoke up. He talked about how great it was to come into this church where people actually looked like him, where people dressed like him, where people accepted him for who he was when he had been rejected by all the other churches throughout Denver. When he had no other place to turn, it was exciting to come into this place to welcome me, a transgender kid. He also said that having people at the church that looked like his parents was first very unsettling, given all the heartache that he had experienced in his life. But over time, it had become nice. Over time, I've enjoyed it, he said, because I got to thinking, maybe if I can have a relationship with them, then over time, I'll learn how to forgive my mom and dad. Yes. Yes. I think to be a church that welcomes the question, what do you think? requires the church to work inwardly. At times, the church has always said, yes, Lord, but never went into the vineyard. For all the times he said, yes, Lord, but refused to work next to the person that did not vote or look or dress like them. It's not easy. It's not easy at all to answer that question that Jesus asked because it's not easy to look inwardly because then we get to see all those times we rejected others and that is hard. It's hard to be that raw with ourselves. It's hard to forgive ourselves. It's hard to ask for forgiveness. And it's hard to forgive those that rejected us. But here's the good news. The one we said, yes, Lord, but never showed up for, he has already forgiven us. And if the one that we rejected has forgiven us, then who are we not to work towards forgiving ourselves and forgiving one another? That's what I think. But what do you think? I suppose a church that dared ask that question, what do you think, would require some type of trust. Uh, not just any trust, but trust that Jesus, who is the one asking the question, will be there to the very end of time, no matter how long it takes for us to answer that question. Notice that right after this parable, in verse 31, what Jesus does not say. Jesus did not say, <clears throat> because you rejected the Father, now you will never see the kingdom of heaven. No. Jesus says, now some may get there faster than others. They're all headed in the same direction. And to believe that we're all headed in the same direction requires trust. Trust that Jesus cares so much. Trust that Jesus refuses to leave us. 
trusted that nothing in our life or death would separate us from, from God and trust that Jesus is there because Jesus loves us so much that Jesus will never leave us. Not because in Jesus, by Jesus leaving, never leaving us doesn't mean that Jesus will just sit there idly by. No, it means that Jesus will be constantly at work in our lives, slowly changing us until everything else in our lives is downstream from our faith. A faith that trusts God's love is abundant for all. A faith that trusts the Holy Spirit is constantly at work. Trust that Jesus will never leave us. At the beginning of the Montgomery Boys Boycott, bus boycott, it was nothing for Martin Luther King Jr. to receive 30, 40 hate letters per day. Nothing for him to receive obscene phone calls or death threats. Not just directed at him, but also directed at his wife and um, his young daughter. One night he came home late one night from a, a meeting. But this night, something about the call just shook him to his core. He got up and he went into the kitchen. He put some coffee on and he quit. He said, yes, Lord, I know that I have said yes, but I refuse to go. I quit. I can't do it. I can't take it anymore. In our desperation, he said a prayer. Oh, Lord, I am down here trying to do what is right, but, Lord, I must confess that I am weak now. I'm afraid, and I'm at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I can't face it alone. And the king said he felt something, a presence, an inner voice, Telling him, oh, Martin Luther, you stand up. You stand up, Martin Luther, and you fight for righteousness. You stand up for justice. You stand up for truth. And lo, I will be with you even until the end of the world. King said it was that voice of Jesus promising never to leave King alone. He described it to be a pivotal moment in his life. The idea of a personal God was no longer some metaphysical category. No, God was close to me. A living God who could transform the fatigue of despair into unending hope. And who would never, ever, ever leave me alone. Yes, to be that church is okay with the question, what do you think? It would require trust. Trust that God is there to the end of time, including all of those days of fatigue and despair and all those days of success and all those ordinary days in between. That's what I think. But what do you think? So what do I think a church looks like that dares embrace that question? What do you think? 
I'm looking at it. Look around the room. Everyone in this room, you, me, all those missing here today, Lillington Presbyterian Church is exactly what a church looks like that is risky enough to ask and to embrace and to welcome such a question. You know what else I think? I think that question is too important to keep inside. I think this is why God brings us together here every single week. I think God is preparing us to be comfortable with what do you think? So we can ask, go out there and listen as people answer Jesus when Jesus asked them, what do you think? And when we go out there, yes, it's going to be we're going to doubt ourselves. When we go out there, yes, it will require a lot of vulnerability for us. And yes, it will be risky. And yes, we'll hear opinions that vary from ours. And yes, it will challenge our beliefs. And yes, it will make us look internally. And yes, it will require us to forgive ourselves. And yes, it will require us to forgive others. And yes, the one who called us here will not just be in here, but is already out there. Leading the way, asking everyone that he meets, what do you think? Never leaving us. You can trust that. That's what I think. But what do you think? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.